Hello, everybody. Great to see you all. And uh, yeah, so um, we're uh, continuing our series on Matthew 11 and 12. And when we started the series, we started with a passage in Matthew 11 where John the Baptist is having some doubts about Jesus. And so we spent three weeks talking about doubt. And this was the big idea that we had back for those three weeks. Doubt will distance you from or draw you near to God. So we took a deep dive into that and how God actually can use doubt and doubt actually can be a catalyst for spiritual growth in our lives. But in today's passage, there are some religious leaders that come to Jesus and they ask for a sign. It's like, we want a sign from you. We want, we want, we want you to do something miraculous that proves to us that you are who you say you are. And Jesus says, no sign for you. <laughs> Essentially, not, not quite like the soup Nazi, but basically it's what he says. So there's something unreasonable about their request. In fact, there's something unreasonable about their doubt. And so Jesus basically raises the stakes on, you know, he says, no sign. And he tells them basically in no uncertain terms, really. He says, you are really treading in dangerous ground. And he gives them this really stern warning. So uh, most of you, you have doubts. I have doubts. And I think we would want, and God is patient with our doubts. And God works with us as we saw before at the beginning of this series. But I think we would want to know when do our doubts become unreasonable? Or are the specific doubts we have, could we say that those doubts are unreasonable? Probably be pretty important to know, especially if Jesus says we could be in dangerous ground. So we get some clues about this in Matthew chapter 12. So we're uh, uh, this week and next week, last two weeks in Matthew 11 through 12, we start a brand new series the week after that on Matthew chapter 13. So um, open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. It's on page 977, I think, or about there in the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And we like to remind you every week that understanding the Bible, we, we really believe that understanding the Bible, your place also in God's story that unfolds in the Bible, it doesn't have to be a mystery. It doesn't have to be like, what in the world? Um, at the same time, I like to remind you every once in a while that there's mystery. And there's a part of this passage that we're looking today that maybe you've heard before, and maybe you thought you understood it. I, I can say that I've heard it many times in my life, and I've heard it taught on, and I had an understanding of it, and pretty much discovered that if you think you know what it means, you probably don't. How's that for a little bit of, you know, being on, uh, on the edge here as we, as we go into this? So you'll, you'll know when we get to it. It's the very end of the passage. The question that you need to ask is, why is Jesus talking about this here? Because every time I've ever thought about it, uh, read about it, it's been out of context. It's just, here's what Jesus says about this. And you've got to ask, why is he talking about it here? Because it's the only time, the only gospel that records this saying of Jesus. And it's in a very specific context. So, and it's not easy to understand. So it's, there is mystery in the Bible oftentimes. So let's pray and let's ask God to lead us into understanding and empower us to live his word. Pray the prayer on the screen with me, please. 
Father, thank you that millions of people will learn from the Bible this weekend. Please speak powerfully through your spirit to convict, to comfort, and to conform our minds to yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, follow along as a couple of our five ochres take us through the passage. Matthew 12, 38 through 45. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. All right, so what, what makes a doubt unreasonable? We're looking at three traits uh, that we can see in this passage. And the first trait is that it ignores the evidence, which um, I think all of us would agree that would be unreasonable. If there's evidence for something and we doubt uh, in spite of the evidence and the evidence is clear, then it, you know, maybe it's moving into the unreasonable realm. Uh, why do I say this with this passage? It's because of what happens leading up to Jesus saying, no more signs for you, except this one sign. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So uh, go back to verse 22 in the same chapter. It says, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man drives out demons. In other words, he's done signs, lots of them. I mean, there's towns that he's gone into where he healed all the sick in the town who came to him. So he's done, he's done signs. Uh, the latest one in this chapter, they put the absolutely worst spin on what he just did. He just did it by the power of Satan himself. So why would you offer those people another sign? And yet in spite of that, he says, there is one sign, the sign of Jonah. And he explains what it is, but he doesn't explain it. So here's what he says. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, from our vantage point, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the resurrection. His disciples are listening in. He's talking to his opponents here. None of them have any idea what he's talking about. 
And even if they like, took the smartest people in the world and the people most open to the possibilities of what, what Jesus is and who he is, no one would come up with that answer. No one would. They had trouble once it actually happened, being able to process it. It didn't make sense in their worldview, what, what happened to Jesus, his resurrection. So what Jesus is giving them is a riddle that is unsolvable at this point, all right? The sign is a sign that's going to happen, but they're going to have to wait for it. They're going to have to wait for the clue that if they, you know, maybe think back to something that Jesus says, obviously his disciples think back and remember this. They, you know, as, as Matthew is writing this, it's almost like we had no idea you know, what he meant at that point, but now we do. So the resurrection is going to be a sign for them, but it's not just a sign for them. It's, it's the uh, ultimate sign for everyone, for all time. It's the linchpin of Christianity. The Apostle Paul says, basically, you take this out and there's nothing left. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Any debate about the truth of Christianity... Uh, any presentation on the truth of Christianity eventually over time has to get down to this whole idea that Jesus actually not only died, but he also rose from the dead. And the reason is, is because there's a movement that changed the course of human history and it is built on, it is very specifically built on a historical event. The historical event being Jesus rose from the dead. The people who saw it, the disciples, as well as uh, up to 500 other people, the Apostle Paul, just not that long after it happens, writes this in a letter, could be, you know, disproven. People saw him risen from the dead. And it's with that message that propelled that message to go all throughout the world. And it's the linchpin. In other words, it's not built, Christianity is not built on the miracles of Jesus. Although with the resurrection, you look back and go, oh, it's not built on the teaching of Jesus. Even though it is now, it is part of the teaching. It's because of the resurrection you go back and you say, okay, the one who rose from the dead, he probably had some really important things to say and we can really trust what he says. Okay, so it's built on the resurrection. And here's all part of, and, and you probably have heard this, many of you have heard this before, but it's really important to remember that his disciples abandoned him, right? Uh, they basically ran in every direction. They, the ones who ran, would later have the courage to go out and preach the gospel, and according to tradition, all but one would meet a martyr's death. Now, we have, not just in the tradition, but we have in the book of Acts, one of their deaths, right? We have the death of James, the brother of John, in Acts chapter 12, and if you watch The Chosen, and this might make you sad when you think about it, but it's Big James in The Chosen, the one they call Big James. And so the disciples saw him alive. They reported that they saw him alive, even though they had abandoned. By the way, their abandonment of him, uh, if they were just making up the story, you don't usually make up a story where you, who are the leaders of the church, were a bunch of cowards. All right, but it's in the story and it's really what happened. So they report that, but they also report that he 
rose from the dead, and they go to their deaths for that idea, for that fact that they had experienced. Now, all throughout history, even right now, there are people that are willing to die for something that they believe in, right? They believe it is true. Now, we might look and go, no, blowing yourself up and a bunch of other people in a city street, uh, what you believe in is not right, and dying for it is not right, because what you believe in is not right. It's not even true or any of that. Okay, so people do that kind of thing. People will die for something they believe is true. But here's the question. Will anybody die, especially large numbers of people, for something that they know is a lie because they, they, put, they told the lie. So the resurrection is the sign that he promises them. And I have to wonder, and I'm not sure, but you can think about this. I have to wonder if something like this is going on when someone says something like this, and I've heard it many times throughout my life, and I feel for anyone who shares something like this because this is heart felt, deeply heartfelt. I don't believe in God anymore because there was this time that I asked God for this big thing. It usually is a really, really big thing. And he didn't come through for me. And I have to wonder, um, is that akin to saying, I'm turning away from all the other evidence because the only evidence I'll accept is this one thing. And here the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are saying, all the evidence is there, but that means nothing to us. We want you to do it for us. Do it right now. You know, like, perform uh, for us. Might be comparable. It might not be. But if your heart has landed there, just ask yourself that question. Unreasonable doubt ignores the evidence. Second trait of unreasonable doubt is that it shifts the blame for unbelief. Now, it's implied in this passage, it doesn't say it, but look what it says in verses 38 and 39. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, so in this request, the leaders are implying that the fault lies with Jesus. We don't believe in you uh, because you haven't done enough. Uh, if you would do what we're asking you to do, then we could believe. And if you're not willing to do what we're asking you to do, then it's on you, buddy. You're the fault for our not believing. And Jesus doesn't do what they ask him to do. Ultimately, according to the Bible, all unbelief is unreasonable. Okay, so for example, when someone digs in and says, I don't believe in God, the Bible actually says that that's unreasonable to come to that conclusion. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says that we suppress the truth that we know is truth. We can know that God exists and we can actually know about his character by looking at the world around us, but we suppress that truth. So here's what the Apostle Paul writes. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodlessness and wickedness of people. Now, understand something here. If you read the rest of the passage, what you discover is the wrath of God, the way that it is being revealed, is very specific in this passage. The way that it's being revealed is that people suppress the truth 
They make other things into gods. They follow their own way, and God lets them. That's, that's God's wrath being revealed. He lets them go in that direction. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and the divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. People are designed by God in such a way, this would be one way of understanding this, in such a way that they can know that there is a God who created the world and they can know about that God, but actually they take what they know and they suppress the truth. We blame God for not being clear, you know, making his presence absolutely clear. But God says, no, don't blame me. Blame yourself. And Jesus implies that the religious leaders are clearly seeing that he is the one but they refuse to believe it. He's giving them the evidence, but it's like they're taking the truth and they're suppressing it. He's not going to play in that game that they're playing. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Memento, you've had a mind-bending experience, all right? Um, it's a Christopher Nolan film, and uh, a lot of his films play with time, and this is no exception to that. So in this case, one of the things that he does in this movie, he starts the movie. Think of, think of a movie. This, this is hard to explain. But think of a movie as a series of scenes, right, that tell a story in chronological order. In Memento, he starts with the last scene. And then he goes to the next to the last scene. And the scene before that, and the scene before that, and the scene before that, and the scene before that. Until you get to the last scene in the movie but it's the first scene in the story. So the character, the main character in the film, has a form of amnesia that, this is really important to the story, that makes it impossible for him to retain new memories. He'd had some head drama, and from that point on, he can't retain new memories for more than a few hours. All right. It seems, a lot of the reviewers, I, for some crazy reason, I've seen this movie three times. It is an excruciating experience to watch this movie. And I've gone like, to read about it to see, will anybody please explain to me what's happening? And uh, I tried to figure it out myself and just couldn't quite figure it out. And not everybody, you know, everybody, not sure about some of it, but it seems that Nolan wants you to come out of that movie identifying with the main character going, what just happened? <laughs> I can't remember what just, when, you know, you really come out like, like you've had head trauma and you're experiencing what this guy is experiencing. Okay, here's the reason I bring it up. So in the last scene of the movie, which is the first scene of the story, the main character who has been kind of somewhat of a hero throughout the whole thing, you find out, plants false evidence that he will find that he won't remember that he planted the false evidence. Okay? He plants false evidence so that he can take revenge on someone by killing someone. And he knows he wouldn't do it otherwise. 
But because he's not going to remember, he plants false evidence. And when he can't remember and he sees the evidence, he starts going after this guy that he thinks killed his wife, but he already knows when he planted the evidence that he didn't. What was he doing? He was suppressing the truth. He was purposely lying, in a sense, literally to himself, knowing what he was doing, but the rest of the story he goes on living in that lie. The Apostle Paul says kind of, that's kind of what's happening in humanity. That's kind of what happens. In Romans 1, he explains that we know the truth. At some point, we suppress it, and before long, we believe the lie. We just kind of move on, and you, you can read it for yourself if you haven't read Romans chapter 1 or haven't in a while. It's kind of like what's behind what's happening here in this text. The evidence is there for them to see. They suppress the truth. They j blame Jesus. Like he's not doing enough, but they are actually suppressing the truth. Now, you can read Romans 1 and say those horrible, evil people, or you can read it like Paul wrote it, which is, we all do this. We're not innocent. Not a one of us is innocent. Uh, the only reason we believe, those who believe, the only reason we believe is because God's grace, his call on our life, makes it possible for us to believe. Okay? So it's, it's not on us. It's not like, well, you know, I, I have broken through, and I'm not like those evil people. No, I am one of those evil people, and it's only by God's grace that I believe. Uh, but why do we suppress the truth? And the Bible explores that throughout the whole Bible in so many different ways. Uh, but let me give you just a couple of the reasons that the Bible gives us. One of the reasons we suppress the truth is that we love the darkness more than the light, the Bible tells us. So what happens is that light exposes our evil, and we don't want to see it, we don't want it exposed, and we don't want other people to see it. So uh, this is how John... Uh, in John's gospel, it's, it might be Jesus talking, might be commentary by John. Uh, there's debate about that, but it basically says, light has come into the world, meaning Jesus, but people love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and um, will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. All right, so we... Love the darkness. That's one of the reasons we suppress the truth. It's another reason we believe convenient lies about God. Uh, there's an interesting exchange between mathematician John Lennox, who's also a Christian. Um, he is professor of mathematics at Oxford University's emeritus right now. Done a lot of work on the intersection between faith and science. And so he's at this forum uh, where, you know, a mixture of believers and people who don't believe who are in the audience and they're having a Q&A time. And so one of the audience members, you can watch this on YouTube and see the whole thing. Um, one of the audience members, you never see who the audience member is, but this audience member says, Dr. Lennox, I'd like to ask you a question with regards to original sin. Why would you choose to worship a creator God who forbade you to actually eat from the tree of knowledge? One which you have obviously eaten from because you are a rather knowledgeable man. Why would you choose to worship this sort of deity that would have kept you down? And he's kind of like smiling and thinking, you know, about what kind of an answer he's going to give. And he goes, well, that's a very good question, which is what 
everybody does while they're thinking about, you know, you say, oh, that's a good question. You know, so that's a, that's a very good question. Just I'll tell you why it's a good question. It was asked originally by a snake. Now, he goes on to answer this guy, takes it seriously what this guy asks. Um, but here's his point. The serpent in the garden tempts Adam and Eve by telling them, God has told you not to eat that from that tree, but he's just trying to keep you down. That's why he told you that. If you eat it, you can become like him. That's, that's the argument that the serpent gives. Um, and they, they eat. And then what happens next? Uh, God turns to Adam. After turning to Eve, he turns to Adam. He says, what have you done? And Adam shifts the blame. <laughs> he goes, it's this woman that you gave me. It's what he literally says. It's like, it's your fault. I wouldn't be here right now if you hadn't given me this, this woman. He's been standing there the whole time. He's, he's heard the whole thing. You know, this is like, he is not innocent by any means. And she's not to blame. And certainly God is not to blame. Could it be that when you suppress the truth, when you believe a lie, when you fail to trust God, when you prefer the darkness, you're likely not to kind of take the blame for your own doubts. You're likely to shift the blame and blame God instead. So we have unreasonable doubt. Unreasonable doubt ignores the evidence. Unreasonable doubt shifts the blame for unbelief. Um, because we prefer our own sin, we prefer to live in the darkness, we don't even want to see it, we don't want anybody else to see it, all that sort of thing. Um, it's not our fault, it's God's fault, all of that. Shift the blame. The third trait is that it ignores the consequences of unbelief. So Jesus talks about two consequences. The first one's pretty easy to figure out, the second one is the one that's really tricky. So Jesus says there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming. Uh, so after saying he's not going to give them a sign, he say, and he says, but I'll give you the sign of Jonah, uh, which is referring to his resurrection, he warns them that a judgment is coming. So pretty easy to pick that up because uh, he says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, the, men, the people of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. What's he saying? He's saying there's people that had much less evidence than what this generation has, but actually believed. And you have all the evidence and you don't believe. You are on dangerous ground because these other people, they hardly had any reason to believe. But they believed they are going to condemn you. It's almost like you say, I don't even need to, because they are going to condemn you. So Nineveh, if you don't have the background on that, Nineveh was the capital of the most bloodthirsty empire of its time, the Assyrian Empire. God sends Jonah to go preach to them, to tell them to repent, to turn from their ways or I'm going to destroy you. And Jonah hates the idea. I mean, he's like, I want them destroyed. What if I preach and they actually repent 
And he does it, I just want this destroyed. So he gets on a boat going in the exact opposite direction. He's like the worst prophet ever. He doesn't want to. And long story short, he ends up in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. He gets spit out on the shore. He goes and he preaches the most half-hearted sermon of all time. <laughs> a five-word sermon. <laughs> Hoping that they will not listen. And they listen and they repent. And the rest of the book is him wallowing in depression because they actually repented as he asked them to. It's, it's an amazing, an amazing story to be in the Bible. The Queen of, uh, of the South, she travels hundreds of miles to go see Solomon to listen. And all she's heard is rumors and she wants to go hear about God's wisdom. So compare these religious leaders who had the Messiah, miracles left and right, truth, coming out of the mouth of Jesus, that if they would have listened, they maybe would have gone, oh my goodness, you know, there really is a lot of wisdom in this guy. But no, 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 they, they refuse to believe in him. Unreasonable doubters fail to see the judgment coming down on themselves by ignoring all that God is doing to show himself. It's like they don't think enough about the consequences. The Pharisees, he's basically saying in the Teacher of the Law, you should not make such a fast judgment on me. What if God is indeed speaking through me? If he is, just think about it. You are walking into judgment for not following. Okay, second one, a little bit more difficult consequence. Jesus warns them of an impending disaster. Again, why this passage about this demon, this wandering demon? Here, let's hear it again. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be for this wicked generation. What? <laughs> That's how it'll be. Okay, it's, it's, it's all the same context, talking about all the same thing. There's a judgment coming. And so what is this about? You have to, first of all, you have to step back for a second and go, is Jesus like breaking into the whole argument of what he's saying and just giving a lesson on demonology. Doesn't seem like it. That doesn't, wouldn't make any sense. It wraps up what he said earlier. I'm not going to give a sign to this generation. This is how it's going to be for this generation. It has to do with what he's talking about. Um, and yet, that's the only way I've ever heard it talked about. That's how I always think about it. Take it out of its context and say, hell, this is what can happen. Um, and, and because we believe the scripture teaches there are spirit beings in this world and some of those spirit beings are on God's side and some are not. There's a rebellion that took place just like on the earth that took place in the heavens and, and we believe that this is real. So is Jesus telling us about that or is he using a story to make a point? So um, he definitely is using a story to make a point. It's a story about a restless demon. Just says he leaves. He's in a person. And he leaves. It's like he's looking for grass. You know, grass is greener, maybe on the other side. I'm bored with this one. And he leaves, and all he finds is arid places. 
this demon in the story. And then he decides, I'm going to go back to the person that I left. And I'm going to bring some friends. And they're even more wicked than me. And so they move back in. And this person is in a worse condition. Oh, and while he was gone, by the way, the guy swept up everything and cleaned up everything. Or the gal, whoever, he swept up everything, cleaned up everything, and then come back. And now that person is worse off than before. All right, so does this story teach some principles about demon possession? Maybe. You better find it somewhere else. Uh, if you want to say that it does, you might say, well, this is building on what's taught somewhere else in Scripture. Otherwise, it's purely speculation. It is definitely there to make a point, it's a story to make a point. Here's how New Testament scholar, and by the way, the scholars disagree exactly what the point is, but there is some agreement that he is, has a very pointed warning. You can't miss it. This is how it will be for this wicked generation. Okay, so, so what exactly is his point? N.T. Wright puts it this way. He explains how Israel has tried all kinds of things to um, religious reforms within themselves. And the Pharisees themselves, these people who are questioning him, they are, you know, about 150, 200 years before this, they began as a movement. And the whole idea behind that movement was to get to the point where they could have enough holy people, a remnant of holy people in the land, living like God actually rules and exists. We're going to live by his law, in a way that nobody else has lived. We're going we're gonna to do this thing so that God would go, okay, now I can send the Messiah because the land is, so, is not so putrid and infected by sin. There is this remnant, and I'm going to send for this remnant. And so that was the whole idea. They have spent a couple hundred years cleaning up the house, but as illustrated in the Gospels, um, they have not received what they actually needed. Uh, they need the one that God has sent. They need Jesus, but they reject Jesus. And Jesus is saying, now just wait, because it's going to be much worse than you can possibly imagine. So here's what um, N.T. Wright says. He says, they have had all kinds of reforms, but unless the house got a new inhabitant, the demons they had expelled would return with others as well. Arrogance, violence, hatred, darkness, sometimes masquerading as obedience to God's will. All these things would come in and wreck everything. Jesus had urged them to repent of all this and to accept his kingdom way, but they hadn't done so. They needed to know that they were inviting disaster. In their unreasonable doubt, they were inviting disaster. So let's review unreasonable doubt ignores the evidence, shifts the blame for unbelief, it's God's fault that I don't believe, ignores the consequences of, un, of unbelief. And so here's the thing, it's not too late for these leaders. It's not, it's really not too late. It's not too late for any of us to recognize where we've, where our doubt has crossed into unreasonable doubt. It doesn't mean that if you get rid of the unreasonable doubt, all of a sudden you're going to believe. That's not the opposite of unreasonable doubt. You actually could move into reasonable doubt. And there are reasonable, good faith ways of seeking answers to those doubts. Good faith ways of seeking answers to those doubts. That was a major point in my first sermons on this subject is, are you really making a good faith effort? 
to find the answers that you're looking for? Or are you using this as an excuse to kind of do your own thing? And uh, it, can, it, it can be both. I mean, it can be one or the other in, depending on, on the person. There are reasonable ways of dealing with this. And um, you can go back to those sermons to kind of look at that if that's where you find yourself. Before we begin our time of response, though, I want to share with you the rest of John Lennox's answer. That's in that YouTube video. And uh, uh, I think this happened about 10 years ago, maybe even more. But he, you know, he makes the serpent comment, and then he makes some comments about it. It's exactly what the serpent said. You know, he said, you, uh, you, Adam and Eve, God is trying to keep you down. And then he goes on to say this. He says, do I worship a God who wants to keep me down? I'll tell you the kind of God I worship. I worship the kind of God who made me in his image and coded himself into humanity, came into our world to provide a basis through his death and resurrection that I could become something that I was not by creation, and that is a son of God. The basic message of the Christian faith is a magnificent one, that God is prepared to give the individual who trusts in Christ his very life, to be able to enjoy his friendship, the capacity of a joint friendship with God it's the biggest thing in my life, and it will be the biggest thing eternally. The notion that God is trying to keep us down is actually the original lie. 